What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Logos Podcast. This is Max. This is Joey. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking about freedom. Because I'm free. Oh, you're doing Free it. falling. I was praying you weren't going to do Petty, that. Tom Petty, dude. <laughs> but here I am. Okay. Freedom. We're going to be talking about freedom. And I think it's fitting given our recent celebrations of Independence Day. And just in general, kind of our democratic celebrations as of recently. So that's what's up. Um, you were telling me, Max, that you're down in Mexico, but you guys still celebrated the 4th of July down there. Is that right? We celebrated the 4th of July. That's right. But we celebrated it because the place where I am staying, where I reside, where my abode is, is actually a seminary uh, particularly uh, oriented towards forming men for the United States. So I think the uh, seminary was uh, started by initiative of Pope John Paul II upon one of his visits and the Cardinal of Mexico City. And so let's just say we're celebrating in Mexico because we're also celebrating in the U.S. And ultimately the men here are going to go back to the U.S. and that's kind of their home hometown. So we were partying hard. We were fiestaing, fiestaing hard. But in in like outside your seminary, do they celebrate the 4th of July there? No, absolutely not. Okay. Yeah. That's what I thought. It was particular. Um, yeah. So did you guys have fireworks? No, dude. So we tried to get our hands on some fireworks. And, uh, and uh, about 45 minutes from here, there's a, a, a place known for its, let's just say, um, availability of products. <laughs> and um, some of us who were going to try to conjure up the courage to go over there and buy some fireworks, but... Uh, no, they're not for sale right now. And I think you can't buy them. You can only buy them seasonally in Mexico. And right now is not to season. So. If I were you, I would just buy a bunch of fireworks and other explosives and then just try to bring them back across the border <laughs> when you come. And, and other explosives? What do you What do you mean you by know, and just, other explosives? You know, let your mind run wild there. But uh, Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so you mentioned we're going to be talking about freedom today and, um, freedom is a huge topic that we talk about all the time. So I guess the reason that we're talking about it specifically today is, as you mentioned, Max, our nation is just finishing up this week. We're celebrating the 4th of July, our independence day in which we celebrate our freedoms, uh, commemorating the anniversary of the signing of the declaration of independence on July 4th, 1776. So that is one reason. Which interesting fact for, for you historians out there, it was actually uh, certified or I should say accredited to have been an independent state July 2nd. But because Thomas Jefferson decided to add some grotesque commentary towards King George III, they had to do some revisions. And so then it wasn't um, concretized until July 4th. So there you go. There you have it. There it is. You know, it's also another crazy historical factoid is that Thomas Jefferson himself and John Adams died on July 4th, both of them. I don't know if it was on the same day or if John Adams died after Thomas Jefferson, but that's crazy to me. It's like weird. That that would that would be crazier and cooler if you didn't say factoid. Like, that would be much cooler. <laughs> You didn't say factoid. For you know, sure. I said yeah. factoid and I'm like, I don't know why I just said that word, but I'm going to keep going pretending <laughs> like it's normal. You know who else died on July 4th is blessed Pier Giorgio Versati. That's right. Yeah. He didn't really care though because he was Italian, not American. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> but so there's that in any event, we're celebrating Independence Day. We figured in or in honor of Independence Day, we do an episode on freedom. Freedom was one of our first episodes that we did on Logos Podcast, but that was a long time ago when it's we true. still had Sam. So inherently, it was probably worse than this is going to be. And then, mm. and then they preach it. <laughs> and then uh, also, we just have we just read a we read a really good article too from a website called the Josias, which we'll link to the video description to the to the Apple podcast and Spotify description and stuff. So you can check that article out, but that inspired us to, to make this episode. And I don't know, Max, do you have any other, any other reason why we want to do this episode right now? Uh, well, yeah, because I think there's a, there's a lot of conceptions surrounding freedom and it's a, and for right reason, right? Freedom is a major topic. It's something that we should be fighting for. It's something that we should desire 
in ourselves, in our countries, in our social systems, in our moral systems. But what we mean by freedom is kind of the aim of this episode, uh, largely motivated by the Josiah's article we're referring to, but also just by our, our own kind of desires to talk about freedom, given the current climate of celebrating the Independence Day and just the constant notions of freedoms we hear in the culture and kind of the freedom articulated and appropriated by the church, which is kind of the way we're going to lay out the episode. We're going to have kind of these um, these two systems of freedom, um, these two philosophies, uh, almost contrary ideologies, although not completely unrelated. Um, and I think we're going to dive into some of that here soon. So that's what's up. Yeah. So our, like Max just said, this episode, we're going to kind of try to contrast, compare and contrast the secular American liberal understanding of what freedom is and the consequences of that understanding and the church's understanding of what true freedom is and in what true freedom consists. Again, if you've listened to Logos podcast, you've heard us talk about this maybe ad nauseum, but I don't think we can ever talk about it enough because I think it's so fundamental and so important. And eventually what we're going to be doing is critiquing the American understanding of freedom, the Western secular liberal understanding of freedom that we're so accustomed to hearing about. But before we do that, in order to preface this whole conversation, we want to first emphasize the point that we love America, that, um, you know, as we are, we're about to maybe criticize some of the flaws of our, our American culture, but Max, I'll speak first and then, and then I'll let you say whatever you want to say. But just as a, as a preface to this whole discussion, like Max and I are celebrating the 4th of July. Like we are grateful to live in this country. We believe it's a, it's an amazing place. It has afforded me personally so many like freedoms and opportunities that I would not have had had I grown up in another country or in other settings or in other times in history. Deacon Garlic, when we had him on for our episode on liberalism and, and the Catholic nun, which was a great episode, great conversation. He, he mentioned that really all of us owe a debt of gratitude to the countries in which we were born because they provided us with so many things before we were ever even able to start thinking about giving back to them and repaying them. So like, let, like we're not trying to just bash America to bash America for its own sake. That's not what we're about here on Logos Podcast. That's not what we're trying to do. But really out of love for our country, we want to critique it. We want to give it constructive criticism, if you will, so that we can try to help improve the society in which we live and which we're so thankful for. So Max, I'll let you say whatever you want to say now. So, yeah, one slight correction. So Deacon Garlic was on the episode for uh, a liberal society and confession, not the nun. That that was a separate episode. Oh, thank you. Yes, yeah. good, good correction. Yeah, I wanted to correct there, but uh, but yeah, I mean the point stands, and I echo. I'm going to echo a lot of what Joey is saying, but I want to also echo what he's saying from a perspective coming from immigrant parents. Um, my parents migrated to America. My mom was about, uh, I want to say 17 or 18 years old. She came illegally. My dad, on the other hand, did not. And he came at a very young age. I want to say like 15 or 16, maybe even younger. Um, and my mom's family has resided in the U.S. for many years. My dad's, most of my dad's family resides in the U.S., but I still have a lot of family in Mexico, right? But I should say, and because of that, I'm able to experience kind of the contrasting cultures of, of people who live in America and those who don't. And so I've had the ability to taste and savor the goodness of America. And like Joey said, we're not about bashing our own country. Uh, we love America and its principles and its history. And it has, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, one of the greatest nations in the world, if not the greatest nation and power in the world currently. But because of that, and out of respect for our country, as Joey was saying, I think there are some things that we could help inform its citizens on. And in general, maybe those participating in the Western culture, their notions of, in this particular case, freedom and what it means, what it is and what it's not. And so that's kind of some of the motivation for me. And yeah, obviously we want to affirm the goodness of our nation and celebrating Dependence Day because it is ultimately a moral obligation to celebrate such a thing, right? Because it, it behooves us to love that thing which we were given as privileged people of it. But we do also want to talk about some of the downfalls of it does behoove us. It behooveth it? us. 
fret not. I don't know what I'm going with this, but anyways. So yeah, man. So that's that's some of my essentially some of my prefacing before we get into this because this is a large discussion, maybe lengthy, but yeah, yeah. And you saying that makes me just think of the fact this summer at the parish I'm at has a huge Guatemalan community at it. And I've been getting to know some of these Guatemalan people, many of whom were born in Guatemala, grew up there and then immigrated here. And life is different. Life is harder there in Guatemala. I was just going to lunch with a guy, Benjamin, a couple, couple days ago. And I was asking him, so what do you think about America? Do you like it? Like, what, what do you think about the culture? And he was like, uh, yeah, I like, it's really secure and safe. He's like, in Guatemala, if you try to walk down the street, you're going to get robbed at gunpoint. They're going to take your watch. They're going to take your wallet. And there's just no, there's no order. There's no law enforcement here. I, I can work. I can, I can have relative security. I know I'm going to have food on the table. So all of that to say, just again, we're very thankful for our country and the freedoms it affords us. And so many people who come here looking for a better life, but in order to try to make that life that we're living even better and to try to enrich the culture in which we live, which in many cases, as good as it is, is often very flawed um, and tending towards chaos and tending away from God and the truth. We want to contrast, as we mentioned, the American popular understanding of freedom and the church's popular understanding of freedom. So this, this, this article that we're referencing is literally called two contrasting notions of freedom or conceptions of freedom. And what the author of this, this article does is he talks about freedom under three different aspects and relays or describes how the secular world views freedom under those three different aspects. And then in contrast, how the church or how the Christian tradition more broadly views freedom under those three different aspects. So those three aspects, the f- three different kinds of freedom that he talks about, because right? Because when we say freedom, a lot of times we mean many different things. So this is just kind of grammatical work, clarifying our terms. The three different kinds of freedom he talks about in this article and which we're going to talk about today are what he calls external or political freedom. So that's number one. Another is interior or natural freedom. That's number two and moral freedom. That's the third type of freedom that he wants to talk about. And the secular worldview has a definition of what each of those thing, each of those things is according to its own ideology. And then the church, the Christian tradition also has a definition of what those three types of freedom truly are or truly ought to be according to its worldview. So Max, why don't we start by analyzing how the secular worldview, how American culture in general, but then the secular worldview of the West talks about or thinks about these three different kinds of freedom, right? So let's begin. Can you help us understand what does the secular world think of political or external freedom? What, what is that in the mind of secular Americans and Westerns? Okay, so before we go into defining it, let me just take a step back here, right? And just give a, a few names we've mentioned on our episodes before. And I think oh, it's important yeah, because it helps give, give and build the kind of philosophical framework that then gives rise to these definitions lived, uh, lived out. So a few names some of you may be familiar with, right? Rene Descartes, right? I believe he's a French philosopher. Is that right, Joey? Yeah, that's right. He was French. Rene Descartes, Immanuel Kant, and John Locke. Right. And so these are kind of some of the head, some of those who led the headway on what we would call the Enlightenment movement, which are embodied then in some of these definitions on of freedom. The first of which is what we're going to call or what the article calls political or external freedom. And simply the author defines this level or this degree of freedom as, oh, there's a fly in my face. That's kind of gross. Um, as means. Like God's creatures, dude. Yeah, Show some well, respect. Well, get out of my face. God's creature, all right? Then we won't have any problems, all right? Coexist somewhere else, my friend. That's all I got to say about that. All right. So political or external freedom, what is this thing? All right. It means not being commanded by another to act in one way rather than another. Right? So simple. Think about this like an external freedom, right? Literally somebody from the outside pressuring you to do or to commit a certain action rather than another. So that's the first one. Pretty simple, I think. Right. 
And yeah, it's simple, but it's it's also very important, right? Because in in the minds of these enlightenment thinkers who have bequeathed us, man, we're using all types of weird words, today, but bequeathed <laughs> us with this liberal heritage, this liberal notion of freedom. In their minds, this is really so external political freedom consists always in being free from the commands of others, right? So if I'm going to be free, then nobody can be telling me what to do. I have to be autonomous. I have to be, that literally means a law unto myself. I have to be directing my own actions completely. That's what political or external freedom is in the mind of, well, many Americans, in the mind of American culture, in the mind of enlightenment liberal thinkers. And that's even the case if what someone's telling me to do is good for me, right? For a liberal, for a secular, in the secular understanding, if anyone tries to tell me to do anything, that is contrary to my political or external freedom. And so if I'm going to be politically or externally free, I have to be free from the commands of, of other people, right? So that's, that's kind of our first definition. Yeah, and I, I think we'll go back to this later, but that's not completely terrible. That's not bad necessarily. We'll get into why, what some of its downfalls, but necessarily being commanded by another to do something is not always a bad thing, but it should not be the only way we live our lives. So the first one, we got political or external freedom. The second of which, Joey, talk to us about that. Well, the second kind of freedom that this author talks about is what he calls internal, interior, or natural freedom, right? So in the in the mind of the secular world, this type of freedom is, again, kind of what I just mentioned, the ability to move myself, to be autonomous. It's the completely undetermined self-movement of the will, right? And when I don't, I don't know. Do you, do you want to flesh that out for us, Max, especially the part about being undetermined? Yeah, right. I think this is, this is very important, right? So one of the things we hold as, let's say, Americans, let's say as Western people, is the fact that nobody should be able to kind of force our will to move in a certain direction, right? Another way to say it is we think that things are, or I should say people act arbitrarily, that freedom should be arbitrarily done. It's not determined. There's no nature. There's no definition. Nobody should be telling me this. Nobody should be doing that. Because if they do, then I'm going to act a certain way from the interior, right? What's a, what is the distinction here between external and internal? External, somebody from the outside pressuring you to do this, to say this, to think this. Interior, something comes from the inside. Somebody, I, I, somebody is telling me to move in a certain way. So here, there's more of a kind of a, an autonomous sense when we talk about interior freedom. You're not determined by anything. You yourself right. have the right to choose whichever way or however you want to. Right. So according to the secular mindset, somebody has this internal freedom, this what the author calls natural freedom. If they have the they they are exercising, I should say, this interior freedom when they make any decision at all. Right. So whatever as long as I have the capacity to make a decision, to choose between various options according to my pleasure, really, that in the, in the very exercise of making that choice, I am free, right? So it doesn't necessarily matter what I'm choosing. What matters is that I'm choosing. That is how these liberal secular thinkers would understand this interior freedom that they say man has. It's merely the ability to choose whatever you want, whenever you want, as long as you have the capacity to do that. And in the very act of doing that, you are exercising what they would call freedom, right? So um, again, in a second, we'll, we'll talk about the truth of this claim and then the deficiency of this claim. But at the very outset, that is what this interior or natural freedom is in the secular mindset. And then finally, um, finally, we have the, the third category of freedom, which is moral freedom, right? It's moral freedom. So do you want to tell us what that is, Max? Yeah. And I think just as an outset, none of these are completely disconnected. They all have, they all deal with the person, right? They're all lived realities, so that's important to keep in mind as we're talking about this. We we kind of lay them out with definitions and categorically, but it's not because they're completely distinct from each other, but because to help in order to articulate the argument, I think this is helpful. Okay, so the first we had um, external freedom, internal freedom, and now we have moral freedom, right? So moral, what, right? The, 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 to act, 
to act in a certain way. The article def- defines moral freedom as not being determined by cultural pr- pleasure, uh, pressures, right? One is free to choose one's own values. And I would say that's one of the things right now, most popularly, that's being held as kind of freedom. Nobody should tell me how to live my life. Nobody should indoctrinate me into a certain way of thinking or living or order. I should be able to determine my own my own race, my own gender, my own sexual impulses. Um, these kinds of things, I think, is what we see today. And so when we talk about moral freedom, is the ability to choose one's own value system. And yeah, to keep us safe. Right, exactly. So that's so important. Yeah, in the in the secular worldview, somebody is morally free when they are deciding for themselves what to value, what's good and what's bad. Right, when they're not being pressured into value judgments from the culture or from their parents or from the government, but they are in and of themselves determining what is valuable and then pursuing those things. So, and I would say, Joey, if I might add, I think in today's contemporary culture, that's kind of one of the characteristics that marks it, namely that it's anti-institution, right? It's anti any cultural references. It's anti religion. It's anti a lot of things in the name of building its own society. Because why? Because it wants to build its own value structures rather than submitting itself to another. That could be good. It could be helpful. It could be traditional in the name of the contemporary spirit. So, anyways, just a little addition there. Right. So, this is the, and I think that's well said, this is the secular mindsets understanding of freedom. Man is free politically when the government is not telling him what to do. Man is free interiorly in the very process of making arbitrary decisions. It doesn't matter what those decisions are, but in the very act of choosing, he is exercising freedom. And man is free morally, they would say, when he's determining for himself what his values are, when he's refusing to be pressured into having certain values based on the culture or any standard that is given to him from the outside. So this is kind of the, and, and if you're hearing this and you're thinking about, um, some of the aspects of our culture that we see, some of potentially the, some good ones, some bad ones, that's, that's probably because, well, this author is correct in diagnosing what the secular world understands by freedom and really what a lot of the American founding fathers understood by the concept of freedom. So before critiquing this max and contrasting it with the Christian worldview, let's talk about what's good about it. Why? What did, what did the founders, what did, what does our secular society have right? What are they, what is good about this understanding of freedom that we've just laid out? We should desire to have independence, like both as a country in this particular instance, where we were celebrating July 4th, but as a person, like we are an individual, we are a subject. And that's very important. That was important to Christ. He came to save us as a people, but he came to save you individually here being the the emphasis on the subject. And so it's, it's important that as we talk about this and as we critique this to always keep in mind that one of the great aspects about, I think, underlining all of these definitions is this desire to have independence, right? To be dependent um, and to have room to, to develop and have room to move and have room to expand. That's a good thing. That's so that's, yeah, that's just one of the positive characteristics of these conceptions, I would say. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think that idea especially is important to understand in light of a lot of, well, in light of a lot of the totalitarian regimes of the 20th century that sacrifice the individual for the sake of this abstract collective, right? So the Nazi party, like, or the communist party, these, these ideologies dispensed with individuals and even destroyed them at times for the sake of the collective and what the founders are saying and what Americans intuit in their understanding of freedom and what our, our secular culture tends to at least intuit in its understanding of freedom is that no, we, Max just said it exactly right. We are subjects with dignity, with consciences, and we have a right in, in a very real sense given to us by God to move and act freely according to our own deliberations and determinations. And the American understanding of freedom respects that. The American system of government respects that and protects it, which is why we're able to speak freely, which is why we're able to do this podcast, Max and I, which is why we're able to exercise the religion that we desire, right? So 
Yeah, I think you're right, Max. It, and this is a, this was a big mark of modern philosophy, enlightenment philosophy in general, right? It's this turn towards the subject. It's this right. deepening appreciation of the dignity of the individual human person, the freedom of the individual human person. I had a unit, a whole unit in my freshman humanities class in high school called Freedom of Individual Thought. And that was that was presented to us as among the highest values that exist in the world is the ability of the human person to think freely and act freely. And although we're going to say that freedom of individual thought is not the highest value no. in the world, it is certainly a value and it is something to be, to be valued and cherished. So yeah, that's, I think that's the, the good part of our American ideal of freedom. I don't know if you have any other comments on on the positive aspects of this secular worldview. So you had mentioned just now, like the ability to do this podcast, the ability to choose a religion, to choose a faith, to live a certain lifestyle. Um, and I think that's another thing. Uh, and it's related to maybe just a general kind of positive uh, spirit of these definitions that it allows us to kind of have different and conflicting views and hopefully from it, emerges an objective reality, an objective view, an objective definition, and and, and, and an honest dialogue. That's the idea here, right? Um, to use Hegelian terms, right? We have a, a thesis, right? Somebody proposes something. You have an antithesis. We have somebody opposing a conflicting view. And hopefully in the battle between the two, we can find some sort of a synthesis, something that we agree upon as, oh, this is the true thing. This is a good thing. I think one of the things that we have... Um, as positive as that characteristic is, one of the things we have in today's culture is that there's only larger contrast and bigger distinctions rather than any sort of synthesis happening. And so when people try to enter into discussion about those things which we view as valuable, the very principles are hard to agree upon by which to have an objective discussion, which by which to have something good. And so, you know, while we have the ability to grow, while we have the ability to, to progress, to develop, to move, always keeping in mind, it's all oriented towards not just the ability to choose, but the ability to choose what we would say the good, right? Not just with the first principle in mind, as Joey was saying earlier, right? We have these goods in front of us and we're able to choose. That's not the highest good. The highest good, that's, that's a start, but the highest good is actually to choose the good thing, the true thing, the beautiful thing. And I think that in an honest take, this freedom of conscience, this freedom of movement, this freedom of this independence, as we would call it popularly, enables this. But I think unfortunately today we have a lot of misguided people, including ourselves at times, Joey, if we're honest with ourselves, have these conceptions of freedom and then live them out in such a way that that we hurt ourselves and we damage ourselves, which is why we need authorities, which is why we need institutions, which is why we need certain systems and value structures to help guide this, this desire for freedom, which we all have, because ultimately we desire freedom and unity with God, our creator. Yeah. So Max, you had a really good um, point that you wanted to make regarding GK Chesterton. But before you do that, I just want to go going off what you said the so yes one of the positive aspects that the american conception of freedom brings with it is the capacity to you said it to to dialogue it it affords us the opportunity to debate and to exchange ideas which hopefully and ideally and theoretically has the capacity to bring us all into deeper conformity with the truth with what is really true but if you look at the american culture right now if you look at our political discourse Precisely the opposite seems to be happening to me. People are often incapable of engaging in real dialogue. And when they do attempt to engage in conversation in the public forum, it often leads into deeper and deeper divisions. And I think that's indicative of one of the primary mm. flaws of the American notion of freedom, namely that it is divorced completely from any objective truth or value structure. Right. So because freedom for the American mind is the ability to do, to think, to say whatever I want, so long as it doesn't, quote unquote, hurt somebody else, then I get to determine what's good. I get to determine what's bad. And 
if I am the sole determiner of truth, if I am the sole arbiter of truth, then in a very real way, dialogue becomes impossible because dialogue is only possible between two persons if we are both approaching an objective reality about which we're trying to discover more, right? If we're not, if we don't actually admit that there's an objective order, if there's an objective truth, if there's an objective value system out there in the world to which we are trying to correspond, then we're going to be talking past each other. And this relativism that allows everyone to just seemingly think that they can invent truth for themselves is a negative consequence of the American understanding of freedom, right? So um, I don't know. In, in that vein, do you want to talk about that that example from Chesterton? Yeah, I do. But before I get there, drawing on what Joe is saying, I think he said something. He said, look around, right? Look around. If we take for granted these definitions laid out by the author, which I think are right, at least in the way that they're lived in today's time when it comes to freedom, our desire for autonomy, do whatever we want, according to our own value structures, so in and as so far as it doesn't hurt somebody else. Um, I want to take, for example, um, here, um, moral freedom, which we talked about as is the last definition, right? So not being determined by cultural press, uh, pressures. So let's take the example of um, the attack on the patriarchy, for example. Okay. A lot of times feminists are arguing in the name of women's rights, equality of pay, equality of dignity, equality of treatment, voting rights, etc. Good things. There shouldn't be abuses by men, right? But at the same time, the arguing for these things are done in the name of freedom. But they're attacking a complete structure of the paternal figure. So let's say we remove the patriarchal system as the reigning system of society. A lot of times what happens when doing so is we're disregarding the paternal figure in general. Right. So let's say we do full-fledged live that freedom out. Let's say we're not determined by cultural pleasure, pleasures, in this case, patriarchy. Let's say we just completely disregard that and we let, in this case, women do whatever they want and lead the family, do whatever. Okay, women leaders are a good thing. There's impressive women in history who have shown us that women are more than capable and able to do these things. But now let's remove the father figure completely from the picture and let's let that be the reigning factor. Are we seeing good effects happen just on the just on the very basic level? If we remove the father from the from the family, what happens? No, I mean without without the fathers, without the father, society becomes exponentially less free, free exactly. to be to flourish as exactly, as it and, and it becomes less happy. Right, the kids don't have a father figure to rely on. They don't have much courage. They don't have an identity. They don't have somebody to rely on to defend them. Right, and I say I just use that as one example to kind of take this thought experiment to a, a, almost an extreme. Right, because we haven't completely dissolved the fatherhood. I don't think it'll ever happen. But this constant desire to dissolve itself from cultural pleasures in the name of freedom disregards the actual effects of what those extremes live. And so going to Chesterton, the reason that Chesterton, I think, is helpful in this example is because what the church is kind of arguing for is to let the kids play on the cliff, but build a fence around the cliff. Right. So that's kind of the church's spirit, but that's Chesterton's particular example. He says, let the kids play. We should be like kids playing on the side of a cliff, being able to enjoy the view and nature and each other. But if we don't put a fence off, the kids are bound to fall off of the side of the cliff. Right. So what's more free to let the kids play and potentially fall off the side of the cliff or to let the kids play and build a fence around them? That's right. Really so example. in that analogy, what we could say is the American idea of freedom is to just let the kids run wild and to do whatever they want. And if they want to play near the edge of a cliff, let them. And if they fall off, that's okay. They were free to do that. But what the church is saying is like, okay, no, respect the, respect the individuality of the kids, whatever, like respect their quote unquote freedom, but also recognize the truth of the matter, namely that there's a cliff right there. And if you don't put borders, if you don't put limits to their freedom, 
they're going to end up very unfree. They're going to end up dead, right? At the bottom of the cliff. And there's another example. I mean, think, thinking about this in the yeah. relationship between children and parents is, is really helpful to me because, um, and, and this will be the last example before we propose what the church actually says freedom is, which will reveal why the secular idea of freedom is so bankrupt at the end of the day. And think about a, a child. We use this at, we use this example on the first um, episode on freedom that we did, right? Think about a kid who wants, who, who loves chocolate cake and who is presented with a chocolate cake and wants to eat the whole thing, right? Because he loves chocolate cake. He wants to eat the entire chocolate cake. And his parents say, no, Timmy. Dang it, Timmy. You can't eat the chocolate cake. You can only have one piece or two pieces, right? You can only have one or two pieces. In the secular understanding of freedom, Timmy's parents are enslaving him in that moment. In the secular understanding of freedom, Timmy's parents are violating his freedom by putting that restriction upon him, right? Because they're not allowing him to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to do it, they're somehow tyrants who are restricting his freedom. But the church's understanding of freedom tied... Let's go back to the definitions real quick. So like external, it's like, what are the parents, how are the parents violating his freedom? External freedom. They're an outside force telling Timmy not to do this thing. Interior, Interior freedom. Timmy is now having to choose to do this thing because his parents told him to. So now he naturally has an inclination to follow what his parents are telling him to do. A moral freedom. Well, he's determined by cultural pleasures. What cultural pleasures? You don't eat cake all the time whenever you want to. It's a dessert. Cultural pressures. Right. Yeah, cultural pressures. Oh, what, what did I say? You've been saying cultural pleasures, which is a bit different from cultural pressures, but that's okay. Oh. <laughs> you get my point. Yeah. So what the church would say is that when Timmy's parents are saying, no, Timmy, only one or two pieces of chocolate cake, what they're actually doing is training him in true freedom, right? They're, they're helping Timmy to cultivate the virtue of temperance by which eventually he will be able to know what is good for himself and choose in accord with that good, right? He'll be able to know that I should not eat 10 pieces of cake. I should only eat two because if I eat 10, I'm going to get sick. But if I eat two, I can enjoy them and then move on with the rest of my life, right? So I think that's a good kind of image that we can use to transition into the church's understanding of freedom. So in the eyes of the church, in the eyes of the Christian tradition, let's go through these three categories again. Max, what what would the church say that real political or external freedom is? Simply put, is not being subordinated to another's good, right? So not being a slave. Yeah, which is which is similar to the secular understanding of freedom, right? Not being enslaved to another, right? So if I'm a slave, um, the king, the the master whom I'm serving, is not lording his authority over me in order to benefit me. He's lording his authority over me in order to benefit himself, and because of that, I am a slave to him, and therefore I am not free. Right. So strictly speaking, that's the church's understanding of political or external freedom, right? Which is, again, the church is saying we want political and external freedom for people. We don't want people to be slaves. So there's a point of contact there between the two worldviews. But here's where it starts to change. Here's where the point of divergence starts to differ. In the eyes of the church, interior freedom, freedom of the heart, is not just the ability to do whatever I want in a completely undetermined way, divorced from any value structure. Instead, interior freedom in the eyes of the church is the ability of man to understand what is good, what is truly good, to deliberate about how it's to be attained, and to choose means suitable to that end, right? So a person in the eyes of the church is not just free when he has the capacity to do whatever he wants, because often doing what he wants is not going to be good for him. Often doing whatever he wants because we're sinners, because we have concupiscence is going to lead him into actual slavery in which he is subjected to the powers of his own passions and doesn't have control over himself, right? So Timmy eats 10 pieces of chocolate cake and then he becomes addicted to sugar and he can't stop and he needs to keep eating chocolate cake and keep eating chocolate cake in order to satisfy that infinite hole in his heart, which is actually made for God, but which he's searching for in creatures, right? Timmy is not free in that situation, even though the secular mindset would say, yeah, he is. He's getting to do what he wants. 
No, the church says that we're truly free when we actually know what is good. We know the truth of reality. We know the objective moral value structure of the world, and we are able and capable of guiding ourselves, right, of ruling our own passions and desires in such a way that we can advance and attain to the good that we're created to attain, right? So, Max, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So, where is a point of divergence between interior freedom in the church's view compared to interior freedom in the secular view? Well, in the secular view, here, interior freedom is undetermined. You get to choose according to your own desires. Whereas in the church's view of interior freedom, one, it recognizes that there is an objective good that you're oriented towards and actually have the capacity to know, which is a lot. It's a lot more than just an undetermined desire that then fleshes itself out in a choice. The church is saying there is a good to which you're called. And you as a human being actually have reason to understand and comprehend said thing. And not just in choosing it, but choosing how you're going to attain it. Does that make sense? So for our listeners, when we're talking about interior freedom, it's, it's the ability to know the truth and to choose the good. Not just to do the immediate good you think as most beneficial here or now. Right. Not just to follow your own whims and pleasures because those often lead you into what is not good, right? So now it, it can often arise, and we'll talk about this here in a second, that we know what is good, right? Like I know I ought to not eat just two pe- I I know I ought to not eat that whole chocolate cake right there, but we're not yet interiorly free right? We're slaves to our desires. And so I eat the whole chocolate cake, even though I know I shouldn't, right? So interior freedom, as Max said, and as the church would understand it, true freedom for man consists in both knowing what is good and having the capacity, what we would call the virtue that allows us to do it, to choose it, right? And to choose it joyfully, promptly, and easily. So truth and freedom are wedded to each other in their very definitions, right? If you look at the world around us right now, I'm thinking this is just an easy example to use because it's such an extreme version of the flaws in the secular mindset, the transgender issue, right? The transgender issue is a perfect case of point of the secular mindset, the American understanding of freedom run amok. The American understanding of freedom says you should literally be able to choose whatever you want regardless of what's out there in the world, like free from any objective moral order. And so people are now completely disregarding the truth of their own bodies, the truth of their own given realities, right? In order to quote unquote, be free. But the church would say, no, in the very act of working against the truth of who you are, you're not becoming more free. You're actually becoming less free. True freedom, true freedom requires that you know the truth and then that you act in accord with what is really good for you. Yeah. Can I, let me bring up another example that's very popular since we're on a roll here, right? Pornography. It's natural for a man or for a woman to express themselves in a loving fashion that's physical within the context of marriage, right? It's natural for a man or a woman to pleasure, pleasure themselves in the conjugal act. Within the con- context of marriage, for the sake of producing children or unity or love, right? But if we are arguing that it's okay or it's a good thing for man to pleasure himself or woman to pleasure himself, and then we promote pornography as the way to satiate this desire, then we have broken marriages, then we have major addictions, and we have a, a catastrophic society, societal addiction, right? Then we have a whole system that's built off of vice. They now have sex slavery. They now how they now they now um you you know abuses drugs and has a whole culture surrounding this this awful lifestyle, all in the name of freedom, all in the name of natural desire, all in the nature name of choice. Oftentimes, yeah. And Max, can I make a small adjustment to some of the terminology you just used? So you said in the context oh, of the I conjugal use? act, in the context of the conjugal act, you said men and women are free to pleasure themselves. Um, that's like, I understand what you're saying, but maybe it would be better to say men and women are free to experience pleasure. Like within the context of the conjugal act, that's a good thing. Right. But right. 
<laughs> that's a good, that's a good clarification. The idea of pleasuring ourselves that brings with it other connotations that we would say, even when you're married are not licit, right? Even when you're married, right. pleasuring oh yourself yeah. is not going to bring you true freedom. But the point, the point's taken, or you could think of another, um, you could think of another example in regard to religious freedom, right? So American society, the American constitution protects the right of everybody to practice the, the religion that their conscience um, you know, determines that they want to, that they want to practice. Right. So uh, at face value, this seems, and, 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 and in many cases is a very, very, very good thing. It allows me as a Catholic to freely practice my religion, to worship God. Right. But what happens when you get to, I don't know, um, there are people in our society who worship the devil, literally who worship the devil. Um, that's their religion. And according to the American understanding of freedom, they're perfectly free to be doing that, right? And when they are doing that, they're, quote unquote, exercising their freedom of religion. But the church would say, no, that's, that's completely backwards. To think of somebody worshiping the devil as free is completely insane. Whenever anybody is worshiping the devil, they are by definition moving further and further into slavery moving, moving further and further against freedom. Right. And it's this very notion of the good that's being destroyed. So a true, a truly free civil order would yes, allow for individuals to follow the individual dictates of their consciences in order to adhere to the truth as they see it. Right. It would allow for individuals to, I don't know, listen to argumentation in the public forum, right? Listen to people who are evangelizing them and actually freely assent to the truths that are being proposed. Those are all good things, but a free society, a free human being would not be a society or a human being that is tended towards demon worship. For example, that's another, again, extreme case in point of the deficiency of the American understanding of freedom. Right. And I think, I think that carries us into the last category of what the church understands this freedom. So first we had external freedom, right? Not being a slave to anybody. We had interior freedom, the ability to understand what is good, deliberate about it, and then choose the means of attaining said good. The last of which is moral freedom, right? Knowing what the true good for man is and what means are necessary to attain it and being able to make use of those means, right? So knowing what the true good for man is, and I think that's, and we'll talk about this here shortly, but why something like the church, why something like the moral law, like the Ten Commandments, why ultimately our Lord coming into existence is so helpful is because he actually shows us what the true good for me is. Because I'm an ignorant person speaking for myself. I also speaking for Joey because I know him. He's an ignorant person, very ignorant, much more ignorant than I am. But anyways, God helps us recognize the good, right? And to attain it and the means necessary to carry out that thing. So in this case, religion, religious freedom, well, we should have, well, we would say something like the church's moral teaching to teach us what the good is and to guide us in being able to choose the proper thing so as to have a real moral freedom. Yeah, so I think we just laid out these categories, right? External freedom, interior freedom, and then moral freedom. I think a great way to understand how the church truly views these things and what the church really means by freedom is to look at the story of the Exodus from the Bible, right? This is the paradigmatic story in the Bible that depicts the movement from slavery to freedom, both exterior slavery and interior slavery to exterior freedom and interior freedom, right? So the Israelites in the desert, when they were in Egypt, Max, did they have exterior or political freedom? No, they did not. They were under the rule of the, the Pharaoh of the time. Right. So they were, the Bible says they were subjected to cruel slavery. So the first thing that God does in order to save his people, in order to set them free, is that he liberates them from that external or political slavery, which the church would say is a very, very, very good thing, which is also why the church would say celebrating the, uh, the 4th of July and the independence of America from the despotism of a foreign nation is a good thing because this external freedom is positive and even necessary for a man to really become free and flourish as the type of thing that he is. So God sets the Israelites free externally, politically. He frees them from slavery. And then he brings them into the desert 
so that they can actually adhere to God's to adhere to God so that they can know him and love him. That's why he sets them free so that they can actually, it says, offer a feast, offer worship to the God, to, to, to the God of their fathers. But Max, when they get into the right. desert, when they get out of Egypt, even though they're externally free, are they yet in, interiorly free to adhere to what is good for them? No, because what do we hear? We hear that they get into the desert, they start worshiping the golden calf, the youngin calf, right? They build up this golden statue and they start worshiping it. And Joseph Ratzinger writes extensively about this, by the way, and I can link a chapter to that below. It's, it's incredible, but one of the things precisely he's talking about is what Joey is saying. There's, there's, a, there's a slavery to the way that they worship God because ultimately what they're doing is worshiping themselves, they're not abiding to any moral system and they're living their own interior desires, interior desires. Yeah. So of course the Israelites, when they were living under the, the rulership of Pharaoh, yes, they were subjected to political slavery, but they were also impacted by the morals and the paganism of the Egyptian culture, right? So they were inevitably influenced by the worship of pagan gods. When they were set free from slavery to Egypt, externally and politically, their hearts were still not yet free to know the truth and to pursue it with all their hearts, right? They were still interiorly, we could say, under the dominion of the paganism of the Egyptians, which is why they grumbled against Moses, which is why they longed to go back to Egypt and to revel in those feasts, and which is why ultimately when Moses went up the mountain, they didn't remain faithful to the God who had saved them. They instead, like Max said, turned to the worship of another idol, of another quote-unquote pagan god, because they weren't yet free to know the truth and to pursue it with their whole hearts. And because of this, this remained the case. So God set them free from Egypt, uh, from slavery to Egypt, but then in order to set them free from their own slavery to sin, in order to set them free from their own disordered desires, what did God give them, Max? Well, he gave them the Ten Commandments, right? The Decalogue, which is a law, kind of almost, if you will, an external law that told them what to do and how to abide by it. Simple as that. They weren't living, they didn't have freedom. They weren't living in interior freedom. So God gave them a way to, to exert that. And this is so crucial, right? Because in the American mindset, anytime someone imposes a law on me from without, that is necessarily restricting my freedom, right? It's like my parents, it's like the parents of Timmy who are telling him not to eat the whole cake. That becomes a violation of my freedom. But God didn't give the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law to the people of Israel in order to restrict their freedom. No, he gave them the law precisely to set them free, precisely to free their hearts, to know what is truly good and to be able to pursue it, right? This is, this is the fundamental shift God gives the law not as a tyrant. God gives the law, the moral order, as a father who loves his children and wants to see them flourish, who needs to teach them. Even if they don't know it yet. Exactly. Even if they don't know that love yet. Exactly. That's so well put. Um, it's no coincidence. Well, actually, I'll talk about this in a second. So these are the kind of the stages in the Exodus, right? God is... God frees his people externally and politically by taking them through the Red Sea and out of Egypt. Then God frees the Israelites interiorly. He frees their hearts, or at least takes the first step towards freeing their hearts by giving them the law, by teaching them what is truly good for them, by giving them the commandments, right? But then there's a dilemma, right? There's a dilemma because now, even though the Israelites have the law, even though the Israelites know what's good for them, even though the Israelites know that they should remain faithful to the covenant that God has established with them, are they yet capable of following that law? No, they're not. They're not. And I think, and, and I think that's part of the, the drama of Scripture is that people are still not free to follow God because God himself hasn't given himself in spirit to them to be able to do so. Because if man's left to his own accord, to his own ignorance, to his own powers, um, oftentimes, as we know, probably in ourselves, we're limited. Our own reason carries us adrift. Our own passions takes us and thwarts our own goodness and beauty. 
But when our Lord comes, and when we say grace then impels our soul and comes into our hearts, that is no longer just my capacity, but it's my capacity, my, my, my reason and, and my, my intellectual abilities with the grace of God to help me and propel me forward into living in true freedom, which is the Spirit of God, ultimately. Exactly. So this is the entire dynamic of salvation history. The old law, the Old Testament, instructed man as to what was good, but did not give him the power, the corresponding power to fulfill the precepts of that law. And so the Israelites throughout the entire Old Testament, they knew what was good for them. They knew that they should be living in fidelity to God's covenant, but they repeatedly broke the commandments. They repeatedly were unfaithful to the covenant. And even when they were practicing the law externally, like the Pharisees, oftentimes their hearts were still far from the father. What Jesus did when he came was that he brought the new law, not the old law, but the new law. This law, like the old law, was supposed to set his people free, but it was supposed to set them. It was supposed to set them free, not by freeing them from the obligations of the old law, but precisely by empowering them to fulfill those commandments, right? In fact, the precepts that Jesus gives are more demanding than what was given to the Israelites by Moses. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, don't even look at a woman with lust. He said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not kill. I say, you shouldn't, you shouldn't even grow angry with your brother, right? So Jesus is deepening the law when he comes. He's making it more intense. He's getting to, quote unquote, the heart of the matter, because really it's the heart of man that he wants to set free. But at the same time that he does that, Mm. he also gives, ultimately on the day of Pentecost, the power to fulfill those new commandments in love, right? The Holy Spirit, St. Thomas says, what is the new law? The new law is ultimately the grace of the Holy Spirit, which Christ pours into our hearts so that we might follow the commandments of the law. So we might follow the precepts of the new law, but do so spontaneously and, and freely so that we might actually have the power to know what is good for us and to do it, which is ultimately to love God with our whole hearts and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I think importantly here is to note that this law didn't just come as an external force. Like God didn't just impose this thing on us from our very origin, from our very creation. These laws come, if you will, naturally, which is why we call it a natural law. There's something that man's capable of knowing and integrating his life into. And so when our, the Holy spirit is given to us, it's not as if, it's completely foreign to man's nature or man's ability to comprehend or love. It's actually part of him. Right. So like the way that the Exodus account, right. Man is not free. He's enslaved. He's free. He goes into the desert, but then he worships something. So then he's given the external law. Right. But then the scripture moves into an interesting dynamic where it's no longer just an external force. It's actually God himself interiorly moving us into his very life, not opposed to man, but in complementation to his nature. And again, that's just it, Max. That's, that's so well said. God, God promised in, in throughout the entire Old Testament of the book of Ezekiel, the book of Jeremiah, that he would write the law upon our hearts, that he would give us no longer hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh that had the law written on them. What he meant was that he was going right. to pour the Holy Spirit within to, into us so that he would be moving us from within, right? Now, in the modern concept of freedom, that sentence, God would be moving us from within, that necessarily implies a violation of our freedom, right? Because the modern man says, anyone, anytime anyone's trying to move me, then that's a violation of my freedom. But when God moves us, he moves us in accordance with the inner tendencies of our natures that he already created. He moves us ultimately to the end that he created us for, which is he himself. And so it's perfectly consistent with the natural and interior desires of happiness for our hearts, for God to be within us and moving us towards our end. That's actually making us truly free. It's allowing us to love the good and to know what is true. And this is so important. It's no coincidence, Max. And I've been thinking about this as we were getting ready for this episode, that Martin Luther 
whose theology was kind of the religious counterpart to the philosophy of the Enlightenment. Martin Luther considered the new law to be a complete freedom from the demands of the old law, right? So Martin Luther thought that grace and law were contrary to each other. He thought that when God, when Christ came and gave us his grace, what that meant was now the old law didn't matter at all. Now we can essentially do whatever we want because we have the grace of Christ, which has freed us from our sins, which has cleaned us, which has attributed the justice of Christ to us, even though we're sinners. And so even though grace should, you know, bring about good effects in our lives and make us do good works, ultimately the law becomes completely irrelevant. And I can now kind of do whatever I want because I've received the grace of Christ. The Catholic tradition is diametrically opposed to this. And it's the truth of the scriptures that when Christ came, he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but he came to fulfill them. And in fulfilling them, he didn't give us the, you know, he didn't give us like an easy way out. Like, oh, now you don't have to follow the law anymore. No, he gave us precisely the power to fulfill the precepts of the law, which ultimately consist in charity, right? Everything was always about love and Christ came to set us free to love. And this is the whole dynamic of, of revelation. This is the whole dynamic of Christian freedom. Christ came to give us the glorious freedom of the children of God, right? So that we might not be slaves to our desires anymore, so that we might not be slaves to our passions, but so that we may be free with him dwelling within us to know God and to love him. Yeah. What is that? The verse, I think it's Galatians. It's in Galatians nailing your passions and desires to the cross to a person living uh, a radically quote unquote free life. That sounds almost blasphemous according to the secular notion of freedom. Why would I nail my passions and desires to the cross? I should be living them in whatever way I wish. But here the church is saying, no, if you actually want to be free, live in accord to who you are, live in accord to the way that the creators made you to be and the way that he's called you to exist again not just by some mere kind of moral obligation, but in truth, in freedom, and ultimately for happiness. And that's the whole objective of the law, is to rejoice one day in truth itself, in goodness itself, in beauty itself, in accord with these, these tenets of the human heart and ultimately the grace of God, which is what really will free us from our impulses and... um own disagreements in our own lives. And I think um, I think that's what we should be aiming towards. And when we think about freedom, we would like for you to consider this true notion, this notion of freedom that I myself have found life-giving. And I think Joey would attest to as well. I know what it's like to live by a strictly secular notion of freedom. And I can tell you from personal experience, if anything, that um, it's hurtful. It's harmful. It was harmful to myself and it was harmful to those that I loved very dearly. And so I urge you to consider this Christian, right? Well, that's why it's not harmful. It's harmful precisely because it's not who I was and it's not who I am. and It's not who I'm called to be. Yeah. So to summarize everything we just said, the secular notion of freedom says freedom is the ability to do whatever you want. The Christian notion of freedom is actually freedom is the ability to do what's good. And in order to actually have that ability, we not only need to know what's good, which is why God gives us the law, but we need to be given the supernatural power to fulfill the precepts of that law, which comes through grace, which comes through Christ, which is ultimately why the church teaches and which why we teach that a free society can only come about if it's imbued by the gospel if it's imbued by the spirit of Christ. This is why Christians in the midst of America that is following the secular notion of freedom that yes, has good aspects, but ultimately leads to slavery. This is why Christians need to be evangelizing. We need to be preaching the gospel to every corner and crevice of the world. Precisely not to impose our worldview on people, not to restrict their freedom, not to keep them from doing what they want to do, but precisely to give them the freedom that they were created for. The freedom that Christ offers them through grace and the sacraments, the freedom to become saints, because really a free person is a saint. If you look at the saints, they were preeminently free because they were ultimately capable 
of self-sacrificial love. Yeah, I think it's well said, Jerry. And I think always looking to the saints as the witnesses to those things which we hold to so dearly. They're kind of our heroes, not kind of, they are our heroes. They're they're the Captain America, if you will, given the current current theme of our discussion. They are the um the ant man, although nobody I think really looks at him as a hero. Anyways, <laughs> but you get my point, right? The saints uh kind of show us who who we're called to be, and I think they should be the the ones that we look to. And that's all I have on today's episode. Guys, Joe, any last remarks before we go to a close? A closeth since we're there. Hmm. No, just that uh, we're praying for our listeners. Um, again, that we that we love our country. We're thankful for our nation, but we want to give it the freedom of the sons of God and not just this secular version of freedom. So let's continue working towards doing that preeminently by being faithful to the Lord ourselves. Right. So guys, thank you for tuning into this episode of Logos Podcast. We hope you learned something. We hope you took to heart this Christian notion of freedom. And we hope that not only you know it conceptually, that you live it in your own life and that you allow our Lord's grace to come upon you who is the true Logos, Jesus Christ. So guys, as always, God bless.